Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This panel has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and presenters at Metatopia 2019. Episode 257, The Three Rings Setting, Scope in Game Design, presented by Kenneth Height. This gets a little bit bigger crowd, but maybe not today. Yeah, still. All right. All right. Thank you. Um, the uh, topic is, uh, I think it's described as the three ring setting. Uh, and the problem that the topic is intended to address is scope in creating your game setting. And again, this presupposes, if you want to, this presupposes that you're creating a game setting for a commercial purpose. If you're just creating for your home game, you can do whatever the fuck you want. As long as your players are happy and you're not bored, you won. Good. You did a good job. I applaud you. This is for a marketable thing that you intend other people to play more than once. Which again implies that it uh, is a, uh, a multi-use game. It's a game that is going to see more than one, or at least more than one campaign run in it. Uh, and that leads to the question of what are you doing in your world? Uh, games have at least one core story or core activity that you do. Dungeons and Dragons is we bust into the dungeons, we kill the monsters, we take their stuff. We get rich and powerful by doing so. Traveler's core activity is we travel the Starlands engaging in possibly shady business deals. Uh, the core activity of Vampire is we um, uh, uh, murder human beings to stay alive while also dodging the murderous politics of our own kind. All of those are basically core stories. Call of Cthulhu is you investigate the horrors of the Cthulhu mythos um, uh, to prevent others from being destroyed by that. These are basically very core activities that every game needs to have, and if it doesn't, that's a whole different problem. And it's one you should have addressed in the previous panel. Uh, the setting, as I have talked about before, needs to be the place where the, uh, the maximum amount of that core activity can take place because you're intending for a repeatable experience. You're intending for multiple campaigns to be run. You're intending for uh, the game to be iterative so that as you've done, you investigated the old church, now we're gonna investigate the old mine shaft. Now we're gonna investigate the weird radio station. Now we're gonna investigate. So things have to keep being able to be happening. So you have to be setting it at a place and at a time that such things make sense. So D&D ideally happens, you know, in your quad medieval fantasy realm. Uh, with no central authority, basically. So that dungeoning around by a bunch of well-armed freelance looters is a sensible, or at least non-insane, uh, core activity to have happen. All right, so that's, that's where we are in terms of 
setting and core activity. Oh, the setting is the thing that isn't the plot and it isn't the characters. It's one of the two core things that the game designer needs to make, setting and mechanics. And you could argue the mechanics are a subset of setting because mechanics are how do the rules of magic and chance and physics work in this universe? That's a setting question. But setting and mechanics are usually considered very separately, and that's how we're going to do it right now because I'm not going to talk about mechanics. Knock yourself out. Mechanic away. We did a lovely panel on mechanizing the setting. I, uh, I think one or two of you were there for it. So, uh, when you are building your setting, it needs to support a core activity. But what, I hear you say, of enormous settings, your Forgotten Realmses, your whole worlds of the Camarillas, your star empire of man in Traveler, what of them? And I say to you, are they actually big? What changes when you dungeon in the far southern part of the Forgotten Realms versus the far western part of the Forgotten Realms? Slightly different random encounter tables, that's what changes. Because you're still doing the same core activity. And although you can have deep richness, replay value, customizability, all of these things are very valuable things by having a large geographical setting, using the term geography in its loosest sense, you're not getting multiple core activities. But you can build a setting to support multiple core activities by varying the qualities of the setting. And the example that made me think of this as a question is my own uh, setting Day After Ragnarok, which I did for Savage Worlds, for Hero, and for Fate. And when I say I did it, I did it for Savage Worlds, and Darren did it for Hero, and um, uh, uh, Tom Cataret, I think, wound up doing it for Fate. Or Lenny Balsari did it for Fate. Tom Cataret just didn't do anything. Um, so the uh, so in Day After Ragnarok, it takes place on Earth after the Nazis tried and failed to summon the Norse apocalypse, the Teutonic apocalypse, Ragnarok. Uh, the Midgard Serpent comes back to life. Harry Truman nukes it with the Trinity device. It falls back to Earth, destroying Nazi Germany because the Nazis are schmucks. And uh, the world is three years after that disaster, heading more slowly for a different disaster, but they don't always know it. But the purpose of that setting, as I designed it, was to provide geographically demarcated areas of play. And I think another example of that is Torg, where there are geographically demarcated areas of play, but those demarcate themselves by genre, again, not by core activity, because the core activity of Torg is stop invading knights from another cosm. That's the core activity of Torg, and it happens whether you're in Orosh, or the Cyber Papacy, or regular old Earth, or wherever. Stopping invading knights from another cosm. That is your story. That's what you're doing. Um, but in uh, Day After Ragnarok, what I wanted was there's one place where you can play uh, a Conan with submachine guns, sort of post-apocalyptic Conan, and that place is uh, the United, uh, basically broadly written, the American uh, continent east of the Rockies, because the serpent has fallen and a giant serpent tsunami has swept over the land, and serpent poison has rained down and grown a bunch of coincidental enormous snakes. So it's Conan, set in 1948 with submachine guns. But the whole world is not Conan because it doesn't need to be. 
you can tell every Conan story imaginable, and Robert E. Howard told every Conan story imaginable in a relatively small geographic compass. I had the whole eastern two-thirds of North America. That's big enough for Conan. So what is the other core story besides um, uh, post-apocalypse? In the post-apocalypse, I, I presented the core story there as uh, what I called the phoenix and the sword, riffing off Conan again, which is rebuilding, right? Your people in an area, you're rebuilding. The other core, core stories are, um, uh, uh, the, or the story types that I put in the game, are wolves on the border, which is you're the sort of standard freelance thugs and murderers that are in every role-playing game. And um, uh, uh, you are driven to kill strangers and take their belongings. For good or for ill. It's up to you. And then uh, something that I called Servants of the Crown, which is the same exact story except you work for somebody. Uh, usually the British government, because it's the last free nation in the world. And by British, I mean Australian, because that's what's left of the British Empire. Um, maybe you work for the remnant of the United States. Maybe you work for Howard Hughes. Maybe you work for whoever. But basically, that's your story. So you're the same people. You're just the assets of somebody else. So it's the same core story. And then the fifth one was Cities of the Emerald Knight, which attempted to be a third type of core story, and I think is the least supported in the book. In my defense, it's only 55,000 words. And that is crime and problem solving. But, but it can't be looters and robbers because you're t it takes place by definition in a city. And so it's the city that this horrific poisonous universe has changed, poison has seeped in, all kind of monsters and plots and communists and, you have, and Nazis, and you have to stop them. And that's different from as a core story because it's an investigative story. And again, it's the least supported, A, because Savage Worlds doesn't really support investigation, B, because there was only 55,000 words. It's easier to limn a barbarian uh, Midwest than it is to limn a uh, Los Angeles that you can investigate things in. So, so I sort of have two and a half core stories in that book. And again, the way you can tell which one you're in is where you are geographically. If you're doing Conan stories or those same stories, you're in a shatter zone. You're in the American Midwest. You're in um, the increasingly post-colonial Africa. You're in the borderland between Japan and Britain. In a place where you can go around and commit horrible murder and do awful things and kill monsters and no one really can say, don't do that. Or you can do that for the British Empire or whoever. Same deal. And then there is the stories that take place that are rebuilding that can only take place in the actual wasteland and the stories of investigation that can only take place in actual civilization. And so the world is divided not neatly and geographically, but conceptually into these three zones, wasteland, shatter zone, and civilization. And you can certainly imagine cases where the secret agents are sent into civilization or have adventures in civilization. James Bond mostly adventures in civilization, for example, but is structurally very, very similar uh, to an investigation with a lot of killing and theft. Um, so you can, you can build sort of Things that, and certainly from the playground, the ground of play looked like overlapping those core stories. And that is just part of the uh, repertoire of any good GM, is that you disguise the core story as a different story, or a different kind of story, or the fun new flavor, or whatever, so that everyone doesn't notice. This is basically the same as the last 18 dungeons. 
It's just a little bit deeper and has more purple worms in it. Um, but the fun of the of, of D and D is not structural. The fun of D and D is experiential. It's tactical. So that's a different question again. Although the fun of your game should inform the core story and vice versa. But the setting initially allows for these multiple kinds of core stories. And if you look at Eberron by the lovely Keith Baker, he again attempts to do that. He is constrained even more than I was, not by space, but by the fact that D&D mechanically is not set up to tell two different kinds of core stories. So he has a lot of potential core stories in the, uh, in the fiction or the lore or the world background, but in terms of actual activity, there's very little in that way. And you see some of that... Um, tension as people tried to write more sophisticated urban adventures way back in early D&D. And you could argue that urban adventure and wilderness adventure or dungeon adventure are the actual two attempted core stories in D&D. And D&D, like my game, did half of it, half of one and all of another. Uh, and, that, and that can take us toward a, a notion of the sort of fundamental divide in your setting between the urban and the rural or the urban and the wild or the urban and the broken. And in a, you can imagine a game in which Vampire had multiple core stories, taking an urban and a wild in the same city. And uh, Vampire does not have multiple core stories for the excellent reason that it's hard enough to get people to play the core story of Vampire without <laughs> screwing it up. And you certainly, when you write Vampire, or when I write Vampire, you give lip service to, oh, you can do oh so many things but you're a vampire and there's a bunch of boss vampires who are dicks, so your story is always going to be the one I just said. You murder people, try to stay alive, you are oppressed by politics. And that's true whether you're an Anarch or a Camarilla or a Sabbat vampire. It's just the way of the world. Sabbat vampires, again, it's an attempt by the earlier uh, iterations of White Wolf to change their core story from, um, uh, from the one that I said to D&D's core story of murder and robbery um, with, I think, indifferent success. Because when you take politics out of vampire, you take the point out of vampire in many ways. Um, because, and again, that's a question of knowing what are your core story. What core story can your system tell? So in a setting, if you're trying to differentiate core story and differentiate geographically, what kind of signposts do you need to have? And it can be as stark as the Cosm boundaries in Torg. If you're in this triangle that is blue, suddenly we're in this core story. If you're in this triangle that is green, suddenly we're in this core story. To an extent, again, Traveler is, is a game that rapidly lost the plot of what its core story was, um, uh, which is why it kept having to reinvent its universe over and over. Um, its core story took, takes place at the frontier, and then they cleverly ruled all their frontier out of existence and discovered they didn't have a core story that didn't take place in the frontier. The mystery of Traveler solved. Um, but if you were to take Traveler and say, I'm going to figure out a, do, a way to do um, uh, core stories of investigation or core stories of uh, politics and maneuver, you could, in theory, have built a Traveler game that had you know, core stars, colonies, and frontier as the three zones in which three different things happen. You can see a traveler that can do that. You may even have played that traveler if you were a very good GM and had players who didn't mind you bullying them and didn't start um, uh, price cartels 
because they were accounting majors. The um, so I think I think the, the the key the question that you have to ask is to what degree is geographical scope necessary to provide multiple core stories? Because if the dungeon core story requires there to be no real authority, there is an irreducible amount of distance that you have to assume exists. Vampire gets away with it by having a gothically exaggerated pretend notion of urban politics. A place in which the Chicago Police Department dare not go. Doesn't bother to go is true, but is not actually workable for this story. Because if there was a lot of dragon heads being dragged out of you know, um, uh, Marquette Park, the cops would go there. <laughs> um, so the, so the, the, the question is, how big can your world, does your world need to be to plausibly establish, not just in words, but subconsciously as the player reads it, the notion that, oh, this world has more than one sort of activity that can happen in it. And the game ideally supports that more than one sort of activity. And I think, based again entirely on my prejudices and my experience, if your world is much smaller than a continent, and, uh, and in theory you could do it because obviously uh, actual zones of control fell off very rapidly before modern transportation. You could have a world the size of a you know average sized duchy and tell core stories of the, the, the frontier and core stories of the urban. That would make total sense. Um, but I think modern day players might rebel at the notion that no, um, uh, in Nuremberg, it's an urban adventure, but eight miles out of Nuremberg, it's a dungeon adventure. And that this junction would throw them out of the necessary um, uh, su suspension of disbelief sublimation that you need to have a core story function and need to have a setting be believable. Because that is, of course, as I've mentioned in previous panels, one of the core jobs of the setting is to provide the believability support for all the idiot things that your players are doing or the crazy magical things that the rules are allowing them to do. You have to believe that this is how a city of vampires would work and that it has to look enough like your city or a city that you're familiar with so that you then buy the ludicrous things about vampire cosmology that are needed to make the setting fun and effective and evocative and all the other things that vampire does. Similarly, you have to believe in um, uh, a loosey-goosey, arbitrarily non-existent government in order to believe in people literally being allowed to wander around with fireball spells. I mean, you, you, you can't process the notion if you believed that they were just wandering around with fireball spells in an actually well-run country. So you have to have, and these are subconscious cues, these are things that you pick up, these are things that we've all picked up from genre reading. Um, and you can try to subvert it as you know, an element of your study. This is a world where people wander around with fireball spells in downtown Manhattan. Well, that's a superhero world, my son, and it has its own dumb rules, and you have to learn those now. So, uh, if Darren were here, Darren is often at this panel, and Darren at this point would be saying, what about superhero worlds? And I would then say to Darren, what is the other superhero core story besides the Joker is robbing the bank? And then Darren would argue with me, but he's not here. Um, so you, if you have a superhero world, for example, um, and you can think of something else for superheroes to do rather than fight supervillains, then maybe there's a reason to have Gotham City and Metropolis. But right now, Gotham City and Metropolis exist as flavors 
not as different core stories. Batman takes, you know, Batman does some gumshoe detection before he fights a villain, or old Batman did. New Batman doesn't bother that shit. <laughs> Superman just uses x-ray vision on the whole island and then drops down and punches the living crap out of the toy man, which is fine. He's a jerk. He deserves it. But it's still basically the same core story. Supervillain threatens order, superman, superhero restores order. The end. Um, if you're Ray Weninger, your core story is vital and different and strange and no one gets it and your game goes out of business. Um, but Underground is worth looking at for a superhero that has a core story that is different. But again, he doesn't have a second core story because he's so busy with that world selling you on the first core story. So th those are my thoughts. That's what I have so far. We have now gotten to the edge of my actual rumination on this topic, which is that I believe it has to be about continent size. There has to be a, a sense of scope that you, the player, feel in a way in which your stories differ depending on where you're playing them. And that the game has a lot of the heavy lifting to do and the game designer has a lot of heavy lifting to do. If you want to establish the possibility of both of those core stories, you have to establish it mechanically, which is where a lot of games fall apart. And then you also have to establish it within the fiction, which is where the rest of the games fall apart. And so, not to say that every game is always falling apart, but very few games... I mean, it's hard enough to come up with one good core story, for God's sake, so no, no shade. But I feel like standing on the rubble of the Traveler Empire and the World of Darkness and the Forgotten Realms, we might be able to see just a little bit farther and say, if I want more things to happen in my world than um, uh, plucky bands um, uh, fighting fascism or um, uh, 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 science fiction-y robots discovering what it means to be human, then I need to think about that as early as I possibly can when I'm digging the foundations of my world and I'm establishing the truths of it. Um, and, that is, and that really is what I've got. So as I do traditionally in this panel, I believe that I have talked for 20, 25 minutes. I have. So it is time to open it up for questions, argument, discussion, pushback, people saying I'm wrong. Uh, we'll start with Rich. How does this apply in the game I'm specifically thinking of as Unknown Armies with its three tiers of play, but the setting right. is still the same? Yes. Uh, Unknown Armies is an interesting version because it is the equivalent of, say, 13th Age, in which you play, um, uh, what is it, heroic champion and epic tier. And it's how many levels you are. So, uh, Unknown Armies, for people who don't know, have street level, which is sort of skeevy magicians hungry for power. And then global level, which is fancy magicians hungry for power. And cosmic level, which is incarnations of the very forces of humanity Say it with me. Hungry for power. So the core story is still the same. You are uh, investigating weirdness to gain occult power for yourselves. Whether that's defensive or offensive is usually up to the individual cabal of players. It always begins as defensive and becomes offensive because players. And there can be PvP, uh, depending on your game. Uh, which is an interesting thing, but most Unknown Armies cabals realize that the world is hard enough without screwing over your roommate. So, again, 
unknown armies has a different power level, but I don't think the core story changes at all. I mean, there is no mechanism, for example, in unknown armies. I mean, there's sort of one now in third edition. But if you decided your core story was um, uh, you're a bunch of avatars who are attempting to change the magical, the, the rules of magic. Not for power, but you're just sick of the old dice game and you want to overthrow it. First of all, you're still having to gather power to do it, I'll bet. But second of all, there's no rule by which that happens. So the mechanics don't support that core story. You can say that's your core story, but the mechanics don't do that. The mechanics are basically Darwinian red and tooth and claw survival amongst the magics, which is great. It is a great game. It may be my second favorite role-playing game of all time. But it, uh, Greg's innovations and John's innovations are almost always, are almost all in quality of, qualities of the setting, not in what the core story is. The core story in many ways is not insanely different. Uh, it's usually less other-directed than, say, Mage or Nephilim or any number of other games of skeevy magicians doing skeevy things. Um, in, in fact, it has a, not a little bit in, in common with Vampire, in that if you make them slightly more moral uh, than Vampire's, they're still basically trying to batten, uh, cheat the universe, batten on power, and not get screwed by the more powerful. Yeah. So you talked about using geographic distance, mm -hmm. which gets sort of weird when you're talking about, you know, like traveler setting where theoretically the distance is mind-boggling, but in practice it's not. Right, yeah. Uh, is it, and because you just go, well, technically speaking, that's in the core systems, but we're just going to, okay, we, we pay all gas for every plant that has a fuel station all the way there. Uh, no random events. Um, do you think that uh, for getting people to change getting the player by into, oh, we're in a different genre now, or our activities has to be different in this place, you can use, I guess, sort of mechanicalized travel time, like going, okay, you can do this, you can, you can go back to the city and try to politic after you're done stabbing the trolls, but you need to, to, you need to come up with these insetting things, so you have to, you have to undertake an action insetting to do that, like, whether, let's say, let's say it's like, so in a dungeon, that example, right. like okay, you can go back to the to, to Nuremberg and uh, have city adventures, but you're going to need to find a place to store your equipment because you're going to rest if you bring it in there. You need to you need to get clothing that, that fits the sanctuary laws. Uh, you, you need to make sure that, that your patrons, your your going to your patrons, so he doesn't just have uh, he just just doesn't have his, his thugs drag you back outside and beat you for previous insults, um, because. Because a lot of things that happen in games have this sort of weird visual quality. It's like, okay, we're going to the dungeon, everybody, you know, get ready to kick in the door, uh, listen, listen there, rope steps to the trap, that sort of thing. Do you think you can utilize that sort of visual, like, oh, we need to do these steps to do this activity to change the drama, or do you think it's not enough? I think that it, uh, if you can successfully ritualize a shift between core stories, that would be enough. And I think that depending on the playgroup, that may be easier or harder. And some of the advantages of the D&D's core story is that, is that everybody knows it and everybody expects it. And, I mean, listen at the door, kick in the door, all of those things, check for traps. These are ritual because they are learned into our bone. And the reason that urban adventures aren't is because the urban adventures were all kind of half-assed and didn't work. Um, or were insanely low stakes 
compared to what you could get in a dungeon, right? If you compare City State of the Invincible Overlord, which was the ultimate city adventure, and the Invincible Overlord would try and screw you over. I mean, it wasn't a, a, a free fire just in a city. You, you had to dodge the town watch and whatnot. But the stakes were always so lowball compared to the really awesome things you could get out of a dungeon. I think Monty Cook's Tolis may be the best example now of a city adventure that is trying to be as big and flavorful and sexy and full as dungeon adventures. And of course he put dungeons into Tolis because he's not an idiot. Um, but Tolis at least has other things you can do in it. Um, in the way that, uh, for example, I think Invisible Sun has ritual qualities that happen. And you do things in downtime, character downtime, that tell you, uh, that give you that sense of time passing, give you that sense of working in part of a society. Those are all good things that Mani has done in, in Invisible Sin, in Invisible Sun and um, uh, and in Tolis. Not not in Tolis, but he did in Invisible Sun. And I think the thing that you're talking about, you have to have a headquarters, you have to fit into society, you have to have a patron. If those are your three steps every time you're in a city, I think that can become really, uh, it can become strong play. Um, and I think that if you're writing a game that is about switching between core activities, providing a signaling system like that that is also at least somewhat fun or at the very least fast uh, in play is probably a good idea. I think that's an excellent thought. Um, again, players generally don't give you stick about things that make play easier. I never once had someone complain that traveler uh, distances um, didn't seem far enough. No one ever said, I wish we'd spent more time on ship making astrogation checks. <laughs> I mean, people get mad enough when you make them roll for wandering monsters walking between towns in D&D. So I feel like a sense of transition is better done socially the way that you talked about than just by make sure that they hate traveling <laughs> because that works against the notion of you're trying to change core stories. And again, you may not be trying to change core stories. You may be assuming... The players who like one will play one, players who like B will play B. One annoying player on the internet will play both and whine that uh, he doesn't like them. Uh, but by and large, your systems will operate independently, which is what I think Traveler tried to do over and over and over again and only got sort of halfway there. They had the Merchant book and the Noble book and all those books. And it's like, none of the adventures, none of the story works. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think medium answer to a good question. That's, I, I think that's a good idea and I don't think it's as hard as you think it is. Yeah? Um, when developing a setting uh, as a product, have you found like an order of operations that you sort of loosely follow? Like start with NPCs? Well, I mean, when I'm uh, developing a setting as a product, I mean, sometimes I don't get to develop the whole setting. I'm told it's vampire, dumbass. And, I, and my development involves is killing all the vampires I possibly can before I give it to the players, um, which it was. Uh, when I'm developing a setting from scratch as a commercial product, my first question is not what is the core activity of this, uh, of, of this game. My first question is usually uh, what is interesting about this game, which is not the same thing. And so... If I'm thinking about a game involving um, uh, the Hellfire Club in London, what is interesting about that? Oh, it's aristocracy and weird sex magic and probably taking magical snuff and uh, cobblestones and uh, you know stuff like that, right? 
I have a bunch of images in my head of cool shit. And I think, what story makes all that cool shit work? And in that case, it's like, well, that's going to be an investigative story, right? Because that way you get to do a lot of that thing. And maybe you could do an Unknown Armies type story where you're skeevy losers trying to gain magic through the Hellfire Club. That'd be fun. So, and then maybe you think, oh, you could do a double-sided. You can either play as the skeevy losers trying to gain power through the Hellfire Club, or you play uh, the Ministry uh, that works for the, uh, the, the British Secret Service, which at that time was just the Postal Department. Um, that goes around and busts up a bunch of skeevy losers trying to gain magical power because they're disgusting and a threat to the crown. And so you can play one or the other. Either you're investigators, but you're kind of brutal and horrible, or you play uh, skeevy losers trying to get magic who are fun underdogs, but oh my god, that magic is disgusting. And then you have sort of an aesthetic, and you're like, oh, that's nice. And then by that time, I've pretty much answered a lot of my questions, and it's about sort of filling that in. Um, the zeroth answer to your question is on my shirt. Start with Earth. Uh, I've done this talk, not this talk, but I've done this talk 80 million billion times. And so, uh, start with Earth. Um, the reason is, uh, everyone's already done the map. The map is great. You have no idea how good that map is. Um, there's a ton of research done, a ton of setting material, which you don't have to write now. And everybody already knows it. You don't have to convince them, um, uh, oh, we're going to investigate the Blue Lotus in the town of Bolivar. Okay. I'm literally already bored, and I just made that up. <laughs> you say, I'm going to investigate the Hellfire Club in Georgian London. And people are like, yeah, we are. <laughs> Even if all they're doing is think about that Avengers episode, they're thinking, yeah, we are. Maybe they're thinking about the, 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 the X-Men. Who cares what they're thinking about they're thinking about something. They're, they're hooking into your game because you've used something that they recognize. And that's, if you're making something to sell to another person, that's good because that's how you get them to buy, is to recognize and want. If I have to convince you that the Blue Lotus of Bolivar is actually as cool as the, uh, uh, as, the as the Hellfire Club in London, I have to do lots of work and I have to get keep your attention that long. And then I have to write it into a book. And then that book has to have, I don't know, 15 pages maybe about Bolovar and the Blue Lotus. And you're looking at it, you're like, oh, I don't want to read 15 pages of this. This is like a novel with no characters. This is worse. This is like the appendixes to Lord of the Rings, but without the Lord of the Rings to justify it. This is horrible. I hate myself and I hate you. And then they won't do it. They won't engage. All the good work you've done is just trashed. Every now and again you, you, you get lightning in a bottle or you get something that is designed to appeal entirely to uncritical 12 year olds and uh, Forgotten Realms takes off and God bless Ed Greenwood he's a beautiful saint and we should all be so lucky as to be Ed Greenwood except for the other stuff. Um, but the Forgotten Realms is a, it's lightning in a bottle. You can't do it a second time. Even Eberron, even my good buddy Keith Baker who I love dearly I mean, Eberron succeeded beyond the wildest dreams of a lot of people involved, and it still sells like hotcakes. But everything he tells you about Eberron is like, it's like post-World War I in D&D. It's like the 1920s in D&D. Like noir investigators in D&D. You've got cool robots like in anime. All these things are things you already knew and loved. Why not? And since you don't get to write for WotC, I'll bet, you don't have the advantage of a marketing machine that will convince people that they need you're sort of 1920s with sort of cool robots when you could do the real 1920s with real cool robots and it'd be awesome. 
and you could do everything in Eberron only there, and so you wouldn't have to do it in the D&D magic system, which breaks Eberron. It's so much better. Um, so the, so that, that's where I start, is I start with Earth. I think, you know, it's not even a conscious decision for me. You, you would have to pay me a lot of money to get me to not start with Earth, because I would be bored myself. And if, and if you're bored as the writer, the audience can always tell. Um, so the uh, so the notion then is, is that I think of cool cool shit, and then what is the core story about that cool shit, and then where can that take place? And the where can that take place is somewhere on Earth, some time on Earth, an alternate history, a secret history, a future history if I'm desperate. Science fiction has a lot of the same problem, but at least people recognize spaceships, and they're willing to at least listen, I think, to your science fiction, but they're still not going to pay a lot of attention to it. And as we know, the only science fiction game that is any kind of a real success is Star Wars in its two incarnations. And that's because the nice people at Lucasfilm spent a jillion billion dollars telling us all the story of Star Wars. So, yeah. We, we literally paid to hear that backstory. That was bright of us. <laughs> We're going to do it again in December, too. So clever. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell yourself that. Yes. So the Mandalorian. Hey, it's got an Look, I begrudge no one their fun. Well, all right, I begrudge Dan his fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're working on a game right now. I don't know if you can talk about it. Uh, uh, Hellenistica? Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, I can, you, Daniel, who I don't know. Total are stranger. Are you using any of this uh, uh, multiple four story in that game? And so on? That game is for D&D. Okay. So... The answer is no with a but or yes with an and. <laughs> or yes with a but and no with an and. Anyway, the answer is no. Um, it's, it's D&D. And the, the, the notion is that it's set in the good parts version of the 3rd century BC. So it's legitimately, honest to God, Earth, uh, straits of Gibraltar to the Ganges River. You're playing uh, sort of by default Greek or Hellenized uh, adventurers and murder hobos. Just as legitimately wandered the world in that era... Um, you're fighting monsters just as were legitimately reported from the world of that era. You're using magic just as was described endlessly in the world of that era. You're, it's a recognizable class, post-classical myth. Uh, you know, the, the Hydra is buried under a rock somewhere, probably in Sicily. Geryon's cattle maybe still leave, left horns or hooves around. Who knows what, right? Golden Fleece is somewhere. It's all cool. Ray Harryhausen, buddy. You get it. Um, but it's still D&D. And when it was, it's in 13th age in my game, and even though my players are really willing to follow me in dumb directions, and I'm really willing to run out there campaigns, our core story is still we fight a bunch of monsters. It's less we take their stuff. I have managed to make the D&D core story worse in my home game. <laughs> um, uh, we fight a bunch of monster, uh, monsters and gain the favor of the gods. Uh-huh. But in 5e, you'll be taking their stuff, too, because it's 5e. Um, there will be a politics subsystem. There will be a love subsystem. There will be a couple of other things that maybe can make it about other things. But, even, but I don't have the space, and I don't, quite frankly, have the creative vision, and I, don't have, I absolutely don't have the budget to figure out how to do urban adventures in d and I will do as much as virtually anyone this side of Monty Cook has ever done for urban adventures in D&D 
but I can't promise that it's going to work any better. Um, you know, you'll look at it and you'll say, that's about as good as Lankmar. And I'll say, well enough. I accept that praise. Slash insult. <laughs> because to some extent, the core story that D&D is capable of telling is already constrained, if not mechanically, definitely culturally. And you don't sell something to the largest user base in the world by rubbing their faces in it saying, now let's play it right. <laughs> that was what happened to 4E. <laughs> Any other questions, thoughts, observations? Rich? Uh, since you pointed out how many hurdles you have to jump to like really fit multiple core activities into a large setting, uh, and since you have actually did it with Neighbor, what is the compelling reason to try doing that instead of just making multiple games or making multiple right, settings? Right, 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 right. I mean, when I did it in Ragnarok, I thought I was doing it to advance the verisimilitude of the world. Because we know that in the real world there are millions of possible stories. And I thought it would be nice if you had a real sense that in part of the world there's one set of sort of rules, story rules, narrative rules, genre rules, and in another part there's not. And in one part of the world it's a poisoned wasteland full of giant snakes and Baptist cultists. And in another part of the world, it's just slightly rainier Los Angeles, right? And with magic and super jets and whatever. All right, fine. Um, and I thought, I think I can do that. I think I can make these sort of core stories happen. And I was exploring how few words I can fit uh, a setting into, how few words I can uh, use to tell what uh, possible... What's the technology of random tables do, if you think about it? I was doing a lot of experimenting with my, in my own head on Day After Ragnarok. The end result is very trad-looking, but to me it was very experimental. And so, yeah, you could say it was a dare. I mean, it was just, I think I can do it, let's see if I can do it. I don't know that I sold copy one more because of it, but I don't think it lost sales, and I think that people instinctively responded to the imagined richness of the world which is after all only 55,000 words for the whole fucking book um, they responded to that I think pretty well I mean it did sell really well it won an Annie for best setting it's, it, it did okay um, but I don't know again that anyone has ever run a all, night, all Day After Ragnarok campaigns I've ever been told about picked one or the other to do and very few of them did Cities of the Emerald Night which is why I think it was the one that failed so the um, so yeah, what, I think the reason to do it is because it expands your skills as a setting designer and as a rules designer and as a game designer, uh, and I think that that's just worth doing by itself. And it's even if you don't ever do it, it's worth thinking about. And when you're making a setting, it's worth thinking about what is your core story, so that you don't waste effort doing half of a core story somewhere if you don't mean it, or don't think that your rule set can support it, or don't have the subsystem in in place even if you think that it can do it, but you haven't had the development time to do it. But I think that it's, 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 a, it's a thought worth thinking because if you don't think about your setting, then suddenly you discover you're in Traveler. You mentioned Ace's Knights in the previous panel. Yeah. 
necessarily is the core core activity there just be a cowboy or is it play mini games or is it just Aeson's Lates is a beautiful dad? I don't honestly know what the core activity of Aces and Eights is because I've never run a campaign of it. I think it suffers from a flaw that a lot of Western games had before Deadlands, which made the core activity fight monsters. Um, but it's the core activity of we know being cowboys is fun because we saw Westerns and, it's, and they're awesome, but we don't know what you do besides have a gunfight at high noon or a bar brawl. We, the, the core story of the Western, sadly, is not very amenable to serial play because the core story of the Western is the man who dooms himself to barbarism by picking up the gun. And you tell that story serially, and it turns out, oh, he didn't doom himself to barbarism after all. People are always happy to see Chuck Connors come by, even though he was branded. But here he is, the rifleman, coming to help everybody out. Good old rifleman, shooting people with a rifle. What a guy. <laughs> and so you lose the core morality, which is the core of the Western, as a genre, as an art form, by telling it in a serial form, and that's just the fault of the serial form, and it's neither good nor bad. Um, so it's hard, I think, to do a Western role-playing game that is about anything, as opposed to if you want to be a cowboy, this is how. And I think Aces and Eights, I probably wouldn't play it because I'm not a big fan of the design principles that Kenzer uses. They struck me as ridiculously overcomplex for simple things, but I do love the the plethora of mini-games that are in that book just because they wanted to. To do, now let's do the story of a cattle drive. Here's how you play it. And I guess the thing your character is ostensibly after is money in, in, um, uh, in Aces and Eights. I don't think it's glory like in Pendragon. But again, I haven't played it. Maybe I'm wrong. But my, my impression is it's in the grand tradition of Boot Hill isn't being a cowboy neat. Which is not a core story. And it is, by the way, being a cowboy, isn't it? <laughs> All right, ten, in ten minutes till. So if anyone has a final question or observation or pushback, this would be the good time to do it. Otherwise, Yes. Have you found that you wasted time developing aspects of settings? Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> Are you a shill? Did Cat Tobin pay you to say this? You have to say if she did. You have to say if you're a plant. I have wasted so much time developing aspects of settings, but fortunately, none of it. You know, the player never saw any of it because what I what I waste time in is the research. I don't, I mean, the advantage to ridiculously overdoing the research paired with the advantage of actually thinking uh, coherently about what my game is about means that I generally don't write a lot of material that isn't going to inform core play. But I will spend forever looking up weird shit about chain walk in London in the 1890s, which will make core play cowboy levels of fun but will not actually change it one, one lick. Uh, when I was doing Book Hounds of London, which is a Trail of Cthulhu source book, you play uh, book, booksellers whose shops are probably going out of business because it's the Depression, and uh, you have a lot of sweaty Satanist clients who want to buy Mythos Grimoires. And if you sell it to them, you'll make rent, 
but they may destroy the world. <laughs> so it's probably better to sell them forged ones. So it's, the tension is just personal bankruptcy versus global destruction. It's great fun. And so it's set in 1930s London. And I was doing research and I was reading and I found like all these old Victorian street guides to London. And was like, this is the house on which Lord something or other died mysteriously of smallpox. And I was like, oh, I'm so here for this. So I'm just going bananas. And uh, a Wilhelm March, sainted Wilhelm March, um, uh, asked me, how's Book Council of London coming? I'm saying, um, it's going great, but I think I need to do some more research. And Will says, for whom? And I realized that it was only for me that I needed to do that research. That I had already found enough to put in a game book, more than enough to make everyone very happy who bought it, and that everything else was just me having fun and delaying the manuscript, so I stopped. But yes, I do that every freaking project. And in my defense, sometimes it takes a while to find the thing that actually needs to reach up there and hook into the setting. And sometimes it's because I take the long way around, and sometimes it's because, despite there having been a million baby boomers in Saigon, none of them bothered to write a uh, book about Saigon in 1968, so I had to piece it together from a bunch of different books. Um, so that's, yeah, I, I always take a ton more time than I should, but I don't waste the writing uh, design effort, which I think was the intent of your question. But still, it very much sounded like you were a plant sent by cats. All right. On that possibly tre treasonous note, thank you all very much for coming out. Thanks for putting up with my ramble again this year. Uh, thanks for your questions and your thoughts. Uh, this is always kind of an unfocused thing because the whole point of this is to sort of share where my brain space is at on these sort of big picture design questions uh, to the extent that I'm a big picture designer. And then see what other people, uh, other smart people think. So thanks so much. Everybody have fun.